as you're finding your place in 1 Peter chapter 2, let me just help to refresh uh, some of your memories for where we were and kind of the movement that Peter was, was taking us through and those things he was discussing when last we left off from, from this great text. If you look there at the end of chapter 1, you'll begin to notice that what Peter is doing is, is deriving, creating in his audience an understanding of what the Word of God is. You have to understand what the Word of God is in order to willingly submit yourself to it. And so if you, if you think it's this collection of inspirational writings, you're going to treat it as such. If you think it is something that is, is not all that beneficial to your life, you're going to treat it as such. But if you recognize, as Peter writes, what it is, that it is imperishable, that it is living, and that it is abiding, it begins to change the way, then, that we approach God's Word. And so we recognize that it, it was the agent, it was the thing that vivified us, it made us alive. And so we came into contact with God's Word, we found out that, that we were lost, that we were alienated from God, and we, said, we saw what His Word said would make us then alive again. And so we submitted ourselves to it, and it made us alive. God's Word is the agent that's it's working to bring about, produce life in us. And then we rolled into chapter 2 and we found out that there were things, there was this vestigial imprint of sin left in us. There was malice, there was envy, there's hatred, and we're just talking about holidays. And so there's all these things in us that are competing against us actually living out, manifesting a bold faith in Jesus Christ. And so he told us blatantly, just put these things away. Put away all envy, all malice, all slander. And then he told us this odd expression. He said, like newborn infants crave pure spiritual milk. So we spent some time trying to figure out what in the heck Peter was talking about. And at the base of all these things, we recognize that he's drag- dragging this back, connecting this back to the Word. That no matter how long you're a Christian, if you're a Christian for 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, there should never come a point in your life where you don't crave being in the Word. There are times when we begin to live more out of our flesh, and this is, this is what this is an indication of, spiritual malnourishment. When we are spiritually malnourished, when we're not readily fed on the Word, we're not feeding in His Word and, and taking it in as sustenance to us, we begin to live out our lives in the flesh. And when we do that, we recognize sin just keeps creeping up. Relationships begin to deteriorate. For the Christian, all things, the way we live, the way we think, all of our interactions need to be governed by our investment in the Word. Because the Word's investment in us is what has made us alive. Amen? Amen. So we went through this, this understanding. He said, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's how he left off verse 3. And so it's this idea that because you have experienced God, it drives you back to see him again and anew in his word. It's our experience of God that continues to to relate and to verify the truth of his word. We don't go to our experiences to prove that he's real, but our experiences continue to validate the fact that his word is in fact true. Now what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be in 2, 4 through 10 or 2, 4 through 6, but what I want us to do first is to read 2, 4 through 10, because I think this is the larger kind of macro structure that the whole thing is contained in, and then because uh, the mind can only absorb what the bottom can withstand, we're only going to look at 2, 4 through 6, okay? Amen was unnecessary. All right, 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that's where we're going to camp today. That's what we're going to look at. But look how he goes on. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But look what he says. Then he turns it. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Everything hinges upon how we receive the word. Everything. Everything for the Christian ultimately falls in and out dependent upon how we approach, receive, and, and make decisions based upon what his word says. Let's begin to unpack 2, 4 through 6. 2, 4, he opens it up and he says, as you come to him. And who is he? He says, he is a living stone. Recognize that in 2, 4 through 6, the main idea is that we're being built into something, and all these things kind of hinge on this. So as you come to him, you're being built up into a spiritual house. But again, this idea on us, what it looks like as you come to him. Now, when Peter's writing this, and the words that he's using to convey this idea, he's not describing this idea of a once-and-done coming. So he's not describing this idea... Just like we saw in the baptism, where Kylie is baptized, she's lowered into the water, she's raised up out of the water, and then then we're done. She never has to be baptized again. He's not describing a once-and-done event. He's describing, instead, this event that happens over and over and over again. For the Christian, Christian, there is no once-coming-to-Christ and then no more. For the Christian, over the course of your relationship with Jesus Christ, you readily, daily, moment by moment, find yourself, one, needing to come to Christ, and two, coming to Christ out of obedience. We need to come to Christ. When we are not readily coming to him over and over again, we find ourselves living in the flesh. We find ourselves largely being a disappointment to those around us. Someone comes to us for wisdom and you say, man, I'm just fresh out. Somebody comes to us and their life's crumbling all around them and, and, and they say, what, what does the word have for me? What does God have for me? This is not the time for a, for a quiet time, right? And so if Linda comes up to me, she says, my world is falling apart. All these things are going awful. I, 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 I just feel like I need to go postal on somebody. What does the word have to me? And I say, Linda, I need 15 minutes in the, in the Bible. And so I'm in there, espresso, throwing it back, doing the old serendipity. What do you have for her? What do you have for her? What do you have for her? How are these things going to work out? How are all these things going to do? And I'm just like, hold on. I'm so close. I've almost got it. Hold on. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God. Cry aloud to God. She cries aloud to God. I say aloud to God. And she, okay, 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 that's the same thing. He's just saying it twice. And he will hear me, you. He will hear you. Cry aloud me, you, to God. He will hear you. That was a close one. She almost lost it. Our ability to be instructed for those around us hinges upon the time we spend in the word and the amount of time we spend focusing on it. What he's calling us to here is not just a one and done opportunity. Recognize, if the times you're coming close to him, the living stone, is a Sunday morning, 
And by Monday afternoon, you're feeling thin. It's because you have missed the point. This is our corporate gathering whereby we might encourage one another, where one sister might stand up and say, my husband's leaving me, where one brother might stand up and say, I just lost my job, where a child might stand up and say, you've never met my parents, where all of these things, so here's this corporate gathering where we come together and we recognize that we individually all struggle. We individually all find it difficult. But what we're coming to, Jesus in this, is not just in this time. It's not just in this time. And so what he's driving us to is we need to be a people of the word, steadily found in his word. And what does he say earlier? We need to crave pure spiritual milk. Can I tell you plainly, there are times where you will not desire to read the Bible. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you're going to recognize there are times you don't feel like reading the Bible. You feel like when you read it, you get nothing out of it. Stay in it. Peter's instruction here of of coming to him isn't dependent upon how it makes you feel in the moment. We recognize over the course of decades, he is making us to be a holy people by his grace. And one of the disciplines whereby we get there with his work of the spirit in our lives is being invested in his word. Not being a people that bail out when life gets difficult or when life just becomes life. But being a people who steadily give ourselves to coming to him. Look how he describes him. He says he is a living stone. Has anybody ever been out and found a living stone? Raise your hand if you've ever found a living stone. Nobody? Nobody? Me either. As a child, I loved rocks for whatever reason. Every vacation we went on, I I grabbed a rock and I took it home and my parents would look at the suitcase and be like, "Uh uh-uh, not happening. Like you've thrown out clothes and you've thrown out your brother and and instead you have a rock or a a rock field inside this thing. And so I've got rocks from all over the world, all the places we've ever been, I've got a rock. Well, at some point along the line, I read this little deal that said, in some rocks, there are jewels and gems. Never tell a child that. What I read this as, in every rock, there's a jewel and a gem. And so I took my stellar rock collection, and I beat it apart with a hammer. I beat it apart with a hammer. This isn't one of these little plastic Fisher-Price hammers. When I was a child in Norway, every tool they had in that, so saws actually sawed, hammers actually did this, and blowtorches actually cut metal. No, I didn't have a blowtorch. And so you guys are believing me for some reason. Critically, think critically. And so I'm going through and I'm banging these things out. And one of the things I recognize outside of the fact that not every stone has it in a jewel is that these stones are certainly not living. Because if they were, they would have said to me, what is wrong with you? Why do you keep hitting us, expecting us to be something that we are not? But we recognize in coming to Jesus that he's described as the living stone. Jesus is this this steadfast Uh, agent whereby we are able to put our faith upon and recognize that he will not move, he will not be shaken. So Jesus is this living stone. Look how he's described in the next line. It says, Jesus, this living stone, is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we see then that Jesus in this way is described in, in kind of opposites. And so he's valuable and he's recognized as being worthless. 
This idea of rejected is, in essence, to look at something and apprise it as having no worth. And so if you're to go out and you see a car and you say, this car is worthless, I'm not going to buy it, this is very much the same thing that these individuals did. They saw Jesus, they observed the things Jesus did, they were told about Jesus, and they said, it's not for me, I, I, I don't want anything of it. It's not important to me. In fact, I, I see that it has no real value, it has no intrinsic value, it has no extrinsic value. This thing is ultimately worthless. You see, Jesus recognize this, and this is one of these great truths that Jesus shared. Flip over to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, after the triumphal entry. Jesus tells this delightful parable about the tenants in this, this land, it's the landowner landowner kept sending different employees effectively out there and eventually he sent his son to get a report back from the tenants and they put his son to death and so Jesus is teaching this parable obviously as a teaching on the Jewish people of his day look in verse 42 Jesus quotes he says have you not read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so we begin to recognize that Jesus in himself, right after, right after the triumphal entry, where everybody's just praising him and so excited about him, he goes and he says, Recognize the Son of Man will be rejected. Jesus is rejected by certain men and certain women. Jesus is rejected by some. Peter, taking this same thought, teaches in Acts 4. If you want to flip over there. In Acts 3, what we see is that, that Peter and John are out, and they are teaching, and a, a lame beggar comes up to them. And this guy in chapter 3 wants to be healed, and so he has some guys carry him over, and, Peter, and, and so Peter goes to him, and he doesn't give him alms, he doesn't give him money, he gives him healing. Verse, verse 8, he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up immediately. His feet and his ankles were made strong. And so in chapter 3, what we see there is that Peter heals this guy. And all these people see, a multitude of people see. And so Peter uses this opportunity to turn and to share about Jesus. He's talking about how incredibly important Jesus is for faith. In fact, he writes that Jesus is the center point of all faith. And what happens to him? They go before the, the, the Sadducees, they get taken into custody, and what we find out is 5,000 people came to know who Jesus is. They put their faith in him. But look at chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Peter has an opportunity to share in front of those rulers, in front of those elders and scribes, these guys who are just generally unhappy with what Peter has done. They're unhappy with what Jesus has done. In verse 10 he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And so he wants them to understand that it wasn't something that Peter did. He's not pointing to his primacy. He's not pointing to the fact that, hey, look, I'm the head of all disciples. If you need to file a complaint, it starts with me. He ties it back to Jesus. He says, this guy is standing here because of Jesus. This guy's life has changed because of Jesus. All these things hinge on Jesus. 
folks. He's got their attention. Look at verse 11. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you. So he's tying it back in. He's asking them, he's inviting them to understand the implications of all those things that that they've done. He says, he was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And look what he does here, verse 12. And there is no salvation, and there is salvation rather, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so we recognize when we come into verse 4 that this idea of coming to Jesus finds us at a crossroads initially. And that crossroads, we have to decide if we want to reject Jesus or accept Jesus. If we accept Jesus, then we spend the remainder of our life repeatedly coming to him over and over again. But if we reject Jesus, if we look at Jesus, we hear his teaching, and we say of ourselves that I don't believe, I don't care, it doesn't matter, then we find ourselves there with the scribes, with the elders, and with the Pharisees, being without one that we might receive salvation in his name. It's a crossroads. So Peter's inviting us again to see this conversation. And those he's writing to are those that have accepted God's free gift of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's seeking to build them up to help them understand their role in the unfolding narrative of God. So look what he says. You yourselves like living stones. Who's the living stone? Jesus. So this is what he's doing in essence. He's helping them find their place, not in their own story, but he's helping them find themselves in the, in the story of Jesus. This is amazing. Peter writes to them and he says, look, your life isn't, isn't this grand, beautiful narrative that you get to unfold and write. It's just beautiful and you get to do whatever the heck you want to do. If you are a Christian, the life you live is like a living stone. Your life is lived unto submission of Jesus. Your life is lived unto him, not unto you. So the Christian's life is decidedly different. And we recognize that in repeatedly coming to him. He says, as you come to him, and this is what happens, some reject, some accept. Verse 5, you have accepted. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. As a spiritual house. Now the interesting thing that as Peter gets into this, one of the things we observe in, in American culture is that we, are, we have a tendency towards hyper-individualism. Hyper-individualism. We tend to see ourselves and our struggles as being the most important things ever. And we see all these things and we tend to read scripture in light of what does this mean for me? Not does, what does this mean for all those people around me? And how am I able to integrate myself into their story? So he comes to this group of people who he's previously described as elect exiles. And he says, all of you have a variety of issues. All of you have a variety of problems, and this is what's going on. You, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house. Now, when I grew up as a child in Norway, you'd walk out and you'd see a big field, and it would be perfectly, wonderfully cleared, and there'd be a massive boulder in the middle of it. And then you'd walk along, and you'd see little pebbles all over the place. And, and a church is not so dissimilar. And in church, we have people that they want to be this kind of bolder figure. They want to be this larger-than-life figure that people depend on. And this is kind of how churches fall in. 
And so we see somebody who's always the one leading uh, this certain ministry. They're always the one teaching a Sunday school class. They're always the one taking you a meal uh, when you're sick and you're so thankful because they're a good cook. And sometimes the people that aren't good cooks sign up to bring meals. But you're so thankful that this person's the one bringing you a meal. And they're always the one out there uh, with a push broom pushing all the gravel off of our parking lot. And we're so thankful because we have so much gravel in our parking lot. And this person is a boulder. And we look at them and we say, I wish... I was a bold. I wish this was me. I wish people would look up to me. I wish people would, would, would see me in this way. Or, or maybe you look at it and you say, I'm so glad. And let's be honest. I'm so glad that she's a bold. Because what we see so often in church is that women take the lead. Men are so thankful because we work 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 hours, however many inflated hours we want to give at work. So we're so thankful that women will come to church and just take over so we can just go sit down and be like, oh man, I just need a breather. You got it, honey. Praise God. Praise Jesus. Go for it, baby. My wife, y'all, she loves Jesus. I'm so thankful that these women will come. And why is that? Because they can't stand to see a mess. They can't stand to see things undone, and so they go and they make excuses for their husbands, and they go and they serve in our stead, and what are we doing? We're sitting around talking about our week, talking about our work, and so we find over and over again in churches, men serving in these capacities is a rarity. If you're a men serving faithfully in this body or some other body, please be careful. You're rare and precious, and there aren't many of you. We need you. This is what we see in church. This is what we see. This is so completely contrary, so completely opposite to the idea that Peter had in here. He comes in and he apprises everyone to be even. And so there are no boulders, there are no, there are no bigger stones where we look at, and so there aren't these chief architects who come in and say, look, uh, Mary, you're a very useful stone. Chase, you're a very useful stone. Ben, okay, let's just keep moving. Ken, you're a very useful stone. Valerie, you're my wife. You're the most useful stone. Nancy, you're, you're a wonderful stone. Brad, you're okay, okay. You're a very busy stone. All right, Steve, you're very, very, okay, okay. What we see when he comes into the church is he sees everybody is being even and equal. The only value, the only worth we have in us is our identity in Jesus. The only value, the only worth we have in us is in Jesus. The only worth you have in you in serving in the church are the spiritual gifts that he gave to you. Do you recognize that? As we're coming to him, he is building us into a spiritual house. And so it's not us standing on the sidelines saying, uh, I'd like to be an integral, low-bearing wall. Lay it on me, I'm ready. Somebody else says, I want to be a light switch. I'd like to be a shelf. Somebody says, I'd like to be the little caster thing that's underneath the island. You know, nobody's really seeing it, but if it wasn't there, it would be awful. But nobody, remember, the most important thing is nobody's seeing it. Somebody else says, I just want to be the dessert spoon in the back of the drawer that nobody uses. I'm sweet and useful, but nobody knows it. Living stones scattered all over a field. Jesus comes and he says, you're from a good background, you're from a bad background, but I'm going to make you useful in me. This is what he's doing in a church. So he finds all of us from all of our various backgrounds, he finds all of us from all of our various problems and issues, and he says, I will make you 
useful for my purposes. So he comes and he begins to layer us together and he begins to make us into something useful. He begins to make us into a church, a spiritual house. Jesus does that. It doesn't matter who your pastor is. It doesn't matter which church you belong to. Jesus is the one doing this. We recognize largely our role in this is being there and saying, yes, I am willing. God, in whatever way that you would call me to, however you would see my giftings used for your glory, I am willing. God is looking for willing people to be used according to his purposes, not those where we feel comfortable glorified, or particularly useful, or thanked even. Since you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Look what he says here. This is why. To be a holy priesthood. God is making us into being a holy priesthood. The temple was regarded as a holy gathering place. And we see him when he builds us into this edifice, he has made us holy. Look back in chapter 1 at verse 16. Chapter 1 and verse 16 of 1 Peter. He says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. These people, these stones that he has made holy by virtue of our time spent with him, the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, and now he is building us into this edifice to this people who are, in fact, holy ourselves. Your role in the church is vital. No one in the church has the role of being a critical outsider. And no one in the church has the role of being a pivotal insider except for Jesus. It's not me. It's not me. I could walk off these steps, trip, fall, break my neck, and die. Some of you would rejoice. Others would rush forward. And the church would still go on. It would still go on. The key indicator to the success and health and vitality of the church is whether or not they allow Jesus, the living stone, to do his work in our midst. He is the living stone, and we are like living stones. He is this Place. He is the driving force and the, the vivifier of this place. We are to be useful in this place. He has made us a holy priesthood. And look what our role is here. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through our hard work. Through our sacrifices, through our large tithes and offerings, through all the Sunday school classes we teach, the small groups we attend, through all of the gravel we push in that parking lot, through all the people we tell about Jesus. No. No. Look what he says here. Read critically. We're to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The only reason anything you ever do measures up to God is because Jesus Christ went before you. We've got to know that. We've got to believe that. The only reason, hear me on this, the only reason anything you ever do is ever acceptable before God is because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. This isn't meant to beat you down and say, look, nothing's ever good enough for God. You're right. The only thing that was ever good enough for God is Jesus. And because Jesus was good enough for God and Jesus' blood seals you, saves you, everything you ever do for God is good enough. Do you recognize that? 
And so he calls you to be useful in his kingdom. Stop seeking to make your kingdom the most important thing. Quit seeking to make your job the most important thing and recognize the best thing you can ever do is to serve Jesus and to be a part of his holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices unto him. Now, the beautiful thing is that all these spiritual sacrifices look different. All these spiritual sacrifices look different. And it takes the discernment of the Christian to know what sacrifice Jesus is calling you to make. This is why when you walk in, we don't hand out little slips of paper and be like, you're going to pray, you're going to sing, you're going to stand, you're going to dance. Well, nope, saw you last week. You're not dancing anymore. You're going to play the tambourine. You're going to do this. You're going to shake hands. You're going to encourage. You're going to talk loudly. You talk too loudly. The reason we don't do that is because this isn't this type of assign your own adventure. Where the pastor or the staff go to you and say, this is your role in the kingdom. This is the way that you get to sacrifice to God this week. This is where he calls us to recognize that individually we're each offering up these sacrifices that are acceptable corporately to him through Jesus. And so this question is critically important for us. God, what areas of my life would you call me to sacrifice for your glory? That's a terrifying question to ask. That's a terrifying question to ask. Because for many of us, the question is, God, look, a tithe is ridiculous. I'm not giving 10% of my money to anybody but Uncle Sam. So this, let's just not even go there. But God, would you like me to give one and a half of one and a half of one and a half percent to you? Amen, praise God. And, and we like these really kind of easily quantified decisions. It's something we can metric. God, would, would you like me to go to church? Labor Day. Got to go on Easter, Christmas. Rather go when my mother-in-law's in town. She doesn't like to wake up early. God, would you like me to go to church six times next year, big guy? Because I, I will do that for you. I'll offer that spiritual sacrifice to you. God, would you like me to go to church Maybe, maybe what you would say is three out of every four Sundays in a month. God, would you like me to do this? Would you like me to do that? We recognize that when we're asking him these things, these are the wrong questions to ask God. These are the things that sound good to us. And why do they sound good to us? It's because largely we look at those around us and we make a lot of our decisions upon how we see those around us serving God. Got to ask the right question. And the right question for each and every man, woman, and child in this room is, God, what spiritual sacrifice would you have me offer to you? Don't go into it knowing the answer. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. But a church can't can't operate any other way. If we don't live each and every day with this blank piece of paper before him saying, God, write on it whatever you will, and that's the sacrifice that I'll offer to you today. If we don't live our lives in that way, friends, quite honestly, we're not allowing him to build us up into anything. We're submitting ourselves with all of our skills and all of our perceived usefulness to him saying, this is where I see myself serving. Find it acceptable. He has made us to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And look how he 
kind of affirms it. Verse 6, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here he's quoting out of Isaiah 28, 16. And what we see in Isaiah is they were seeking to make themselves safe by entering into allegiances and offering themselves up to those who ultimately could not save them. So Isaiah writes to the leaders of the city and he says, he says, behold, God is laying in Zion a cornerstone, precious and chosen, ultimately pointing at Jesus, ultimately pointing at Jesus. And so he's deriving a, a, a meaning for us in this, Peter is. Any confidence you place in Jesus will always be met with his ability to answer it. Any confidence you ever place in Jesus will ultimately be, it will never be disappointed. It will always be guaranteed and upheld by Jesus. Look what he says here. He is chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God wants to build something incredible on this earth out of his people. I'm not talking about a bigger building. I'm not talking about expanding our walls. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, having some amazing edifice where everybody drives by on Wesley and says, yes, that's amazing. I can't wait to go there. That place looks like fun. That place looks amazing. What he wants to do instead through the very fabric of our lives is to lay our lives over each one whereby we might stand strong for Jesus. This is the only way he's calling us to be a church. It's a church that is solidly founded on Jesus and a church that lives and longs to serve at Jesus' instruction. Would you join me in prayer as we ask for God to give us clear instruction for the spiritual sacrifice that we are to offer him? Father, I'm so thankful that you love us through the shed blood of Jesus and not through our own good works. We are not met out and atoned by our good works, by our struggling and striving, but we are atoned for, we are saved through the precious blood of Jesus. So Father, I'm thankful for those in this room who have come to that crossroads and we have accepted Jesus, we have not rejected him, and I pray for them, Father, that you would be building them together, that you would help us all to understand what role we are to play in your kingdom. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you, Father, that you would spend your, send your Holy Spirit to convict them concerning righteousness and truth that they would submit their lives to you that they would cry out to you for salvation so father we ask in these next few moments as we turn our hearts towards applying your word that for the one that you would be weighing heavily upon them for the need to submit themselves to you to cry out to confess their sins to you to repent to ask for forgiveness And Father, for those among us who have submitted our lives already to you, I pray that you would begin to work in our hearts, helping us to ask the question well of what spiritual sacrifice would you have us rend to you? What ways would you have 
us live our lives unto you and for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.